0: Okay, we're going to go through the exposition now of the book itself. And I uh, had a failure glitch this morning. I, got, I was getting phone calls by people who couldn't make class today, so I was trying to pack up, which was interrupting my flow of concentration, and I didn't bring my power cord, so my battery's going to go dead before we finish this uh, half of the lecture so if anyone is relying upon this they're, we're not going to get all the way through but we'll hit the high point ok, the first 25 chapters remember I said probably the best organizational uh, makeup here is going to divide the book into two sections 1 through 25 the uh, describes the first generation march in the wilderness chapters 26 through 36 the second generation march of the promised land what I try to do is when I Structure these my outline. I try to follow the basic principle that God is the subject, God is the hero of what's going on in narrative, despite the fact that it might be Moses or Joshua or Jacob or, or whoever. It is always God working behind the scenes. So, the first section I call God's provision for the people, the triumphal march to Kadesh. And this is the exit generation, they are ready to enter the land. They are uh, ready to uh, go where God's been taken. The trouble is when they get there, they don't trust Him. So the first ten chapters, God prepares the nation for the march into the land. He organizes the nation into tribal organizations. He, he lays out the plan for how they will encamp, how the order of march will be. Now, the, in the, during the travel the Levites and the priests, are always the closest to the tabernacle, and they substitute for the firstborn of the nation. That's how they're described in this. They, they stand in the stead of the firstborn of the nation. Remember, God redeems the firstborn of the nation, and rather than taking the firstborn from every tribe, he takes a whole tribe. And so they, they represent the firstborn of the nation. The, uh, the camp is... Purified as the dwelling place of God and I make a point here that the encampment itself is analogous to the individual believer in the church age and let me give you a little uh, if I can skip ahead here look at this map what you have here is this is the nation surrounding the tabernacle and this is where God dwells think about that as an analogy for the body of the believer in the New Testament this is your body in the middle of which is the what? The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So in many cases what you see, if you're teaching, think in terms of what's happening to Israel as a nation as a whole and how that applies to an individual believer. The the, the whole of the nation is often a picture of what the individual struggles are that we go through in the church age as individual believers, That's a Point of comparison, therefore, you can pull some really good application. First ten chapters, God instructs the people to be set apart to Him for the march. He organizes the first generation in the first four chapters. And then he takes a census, 1E. A census is taken as the first step in military organization. The total is 603,550 men, excluding the Levites. So if the average tribe was about 20,000, then the average tribe was about 50,000, then you would have about 650,000 males in Israel. Okay, so you have 603,550 fighting men. Each tribe, then 2E, each tribe functions as its own army. Each tribe functions as its own army. If you're familiar with military makeup, you have, you have brigade, uh, battalions, and two or three battalions make up a brigade. Two or three brigades make up a corps or an army. And then you might have three or four different armies that make up the entire army. Uh, uh, fighting force. So uh, each one functions as an autonomous unit under the command of their tribal leaders. Uh, three Levites were not numbered, but had responsibilities to guard, care for, and protect the tabernacle. They took care of everything. Uh, fourth point: violation of the sanctity of the temple brought what? What was the penalty? Death. Death. Remember, I made this point several times. Does that seem harsh to you? See, you've been so brainwashed. I mean, not just you individually, but we as a culture have been so brainwashed by modern liberal thought that when we go back and look at these, these various mandates, we look at this and say, oh, that's just too harsh. But see, this flows out of the justice and the righteousness of God. So if you make a judgment that this is harsh, You're making a judgment about the righteousness and justice of God, and modern man sets up his own standard of what fair is and what right is and what good is and what harsh is. And see that God, and this is typical of liberals. They try to make a distinction between that harsh, nasty uh, God of the Old Testament and. The God of the New Testament, who's love peace and goodness and kindness and everything. So we have to watch out. This is how the world system of our day uh, presses us into its mold. And that's Romans 12, too. Don't be conformed to this world. That idea of conformity is the idea of being pressed into a mold. And the world wants us to think according to its categories and its values, and we have to be transformed. So, you know, God is saying these things are not just important they're critical and you don't treat god like you do every everything else and that's where you get this word profane that's what the word profane means is to treat something as if it's just like everything else it's common but god is what's the opposite of being profane god is holy he is distinct he is set his heart so we treat him uh, differently it also indicates the Value of the fear of the Lord, the awe of God, is that He is totally different. He is the Creator God. He is not just part of creation. This isn't a God we create, like the gods of the pagans. God is real. He is the God who speaks and hears and acts. A okay, fifth point: the Levites are counted from all ages and organized according to the three clans. Of Gershon, Kohath, and <coughs> Merari; these are the these are the sons of uh, of uh, <coughs> Levi. And each clan has specific responsibilities in the care, transportation, putting up, taking down the tabernacle. Six point in chapter three it tells us that the Levites substitute for the firstborn of the nation. They substitute for the firstborn of the nation, so they have a, and this term firstborn doesn't always have a chronological meaning. Remember, the firstborn was Esau, but Jacob got the blessing. The firstborn was uh, Reuben, but Joseph got the blessing. The elder serves the younger. As a principle you see among the patriarchs, and the term firstborn often has the idea of the preeminent one. This is the one who gets the the, the valued uh, position. Well, instead of going around to all the clans and getting the firstborn of every family and putting them together, the, the whole tribe substitutes for them in their place. Then we have an arrangement of the tribes of the tabernacle, and its center illustrates the set apart character of the nation with the Lord in the tabernacle at the center of the nation's life. And so we see the structure here in this. This comes out of your Bible knowledge commentary, and it shows us how they're arranged, uh, north, south, east, and west. They we have Moses, Aaron, and the priests who camp here, and then they're surrounded by the three clans of the priests, Merarites, Gershonites. Colossites on the south, with the tabernacle in the center, and then at the outer extreme, you have the arrangement of the twelve tribes. And then when they march, they're going to march, and, and Moses and Aaron, the priests, are going to uh, lead out. So they're, they're, they're arranged a specific way for camping, and then they're going to uh, move out in a specific order. Where's Levi? These are the Levites. The, the Levites, remember I just said the Levites are divided into three, three clans. The Merarites, the Gershonites, and the Kohathites. Those are your Levites. And then in chapters 5 through 10. Uh, okay, let me uh, go back here to this slide. When they take off, notice Judah leads, then Issachar, then Zebulun. Let, let me back up just a minute so you can see where they come from. Here's Judah. They're going to peel out this way. Judah is in the upper right corner on the east side, northeast corner. They lead out, followed by Issachar, Zebulun, and then I think Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. So they all just follow in line going this way. Notice how orderly that is. And then Moses, Aaron, and the priests come in. With the tent of meeting and the Levites right behind, and then he followed up by Ephraim, uh, Manasseh, Benjamin, Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. <coughs> yes. I know it's not No. I don't know why it's in that order. Okay. It doesn't say. the previous
1: line
0: okay. that one. Okay. What are you looking for?
1: I was thinking that everybody along that bottom line looks like they lost the most people in the reference guide. For example, help me if I'm wrong. Uh, who was it? Simeon. They lost. Uh, yeah. Everybody, Dad, Ruben. they lost each of them. At least four thousand.
0: Except for Simeon, who lost, lost. Yeah. Simeon lost, the Simeon. lost the most, thirty-seven thousand one hundred. Well, let's keep that in mind as we go through some other things. Okay. okay. Now here is uh, here's another map of. Uh, Okay, this, this is, we'll come back to this map. That's the route of the spies. Okay, God instructs them on ritual purification, 5, 1 through 10. 10. First of all, they purify the camp from, from anything which ceremonially defiles the camp. Remember, I made that distinction between ceremonial purification and a spiritual or moral defilement. So they have to uh, cleanse the camp. They get various regulations in chapters 5 and 6 for dealing with those who are unfaithful. There's always a means of cleansing. So these are regulations for dealing with those uh, events. Description of events after the first census in chapter 7 describes the gifts that the tribes give to support the travel of the tabernacle. And they have... uh, Notice the summary of the tribal gifts. They each give silver dishes, silver bowls, gold pans, the shekels of silver for the utensils. And there'll be uh, 12 golden pans full incense, 12 bowls, 12 rams, 12 milks. Hey, wait a minute. What, what, what were they doing before this time? They were slaves in Egypt. Where did they get all this gold and silver and where did they get all this livestock? They, they, they plundered the Egyptians. Now basically what they did was they said it's paid and they got paid for 300 years of, uh, of their labor and they, so they got taken out and went forward with their uh, with the head and then they give it to the Lord. And for either ceremony the, the Levites are cleansed, are purifying in Preparation for their service at the tabernacle. And then, chapter five, uh, and then point five, the second Passover takes place after the Exodus in uh, chapter 9, 1 through 14. But notice there's also a provision made for those who are excluded from observance uh, because of ceremonial ritual defilement, and that always emphasizes the grace of God. God isn't going to overlook everybody. There's always a provision. And in in chapter 10, 11 through 35, God leads the march from Sinai. And he does this. You have the pillar of fire at night, and you have the cloud during the day. And that represents the dwelling of God, the presence of God. And the word that the rabbis use to define that is what? Shekinah. Shekinah not a word that's used in the Old Testament. but It's a Hebrew word that means dwelling. It means dwelling. The Greek word is skene. And uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Greek word there is skene. Same idea. Tabernacled among us. It connects all these things from God's dwelling with Adam and Eve in the garden to God's dwelling on earth at the end of the Revelation. It's a major theme all the way through Scripture uh, to trace out. Okay, that's the first ten chapters. It's organizational, administrative, preparatory to get ready to go through the march uh, from Sinai to uh, the wilderness. Then in the next five chapters, we have God's discipline on the nation for their rebellion and their disobedience. Everything seemed to go fairly well at Sinai, except there was a little glitch there when uh, uh, Moses was up on the on the Mount for a too long, getting the, uh, the, the the law, and they had the Golden Calf incident. So we get sort of a foreshadowing of things to come. They're not very patient. They don't uh, want to wait on the Lord. And as soon as uh, as soon as they're not getting what they want, that's a sign of immaturity. It's not one of the best definitions I ever heard of maturity is the ability to postpone gratification. And see, we live in a world today where most people want gratification, whatever arena it's in. They want immediate gratification, and they want want it when they want it, and they want it right now. And we, I, know, I, I see that our, our culture seems to get more and more immature the older we become. And that's the same thing that you had here: is they can't wait on anything, and they can't wait upon the Lord at all. And so the result is that they constantly get, go through divine discipline. Uh, in 11.1 1 through 25.18, actually it's, it's, I said five chapters, it's 15 chapters, God disciplines a nation for rebellion and disobedience. In the first ten chapters, 11 through 20, God instructs the nation as to what their responsibilities are and what they're supposed to do. They then rebel against God and then God provides atonement. But almost from the beginning the people complain. And what we see here is three complaints and three rebellions. It's a good way to just organize in your mind what happens here in these chapters. Is there three complaints and three rebellions, and you'll probably see that numerous times, three complaints and three rebellions. What are the three complaints and what are the three rebellions? Complaint number one, right off the bat is in verse one, eleven one. Now when the people complain, now I want you to know, that it doesn't take it long before they complain. We're not told exactly when this happened, but it happened very soon to leaving Sinai. The people complained. The Lord heard it, and his anger was aroused. Now, does not tell us what they specifically complained about in this first one? The Lord sent a, it's almost like a grass fire that, that burns all around the edge of the, of the encampment, and threatens to uh, consume them uh, completely. And it does. The text does say that some were in the outskirts were consumed in this uh, judgment of God. And people cry out to Moses. And Moses prayed to the Lord. The fire was quenched. So he called the name of the place Taberah. That's complaint one. The three complaints. The first complaint is Taberah, which had, which means The place of burning, and this is where the people complain, and God burns the edges of the camp until Moses prays, and that's the end of the discipline. Then we have in verse four the second complaint that's described in eleven four to thirty-five. Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense praise. Now, what do they mean by mixed multitude? Was it just Jews that came out of? East? No, a lot of Egyptians came with them. A number of Egyptians came with them, so that's why it's a mixed multitude. It involves both Egyptians and Jews, which tells you that Egyptians are operating on what worldview. They're probably still operating. If their believers are still operating, pretty much on their Egyptian worldview, and they're they're trying to make God conform to their preconceived notions of. Religion, how religion operates, god the gods of Egypt operate. So they yield to intense craving. In other words, they really want to go back to the kind of food they grew up with. How many of y'all have really moved cross-culturally? Anybody here ever moved cross-culturally? You have. And and if you've lived somewhere for a long time and you really like the food and you really like the environment and the culture and you move across. The country or across the world, especially if you get older, I'm speaking from experience, it's really tough. I mean, almost eight years ago I went to Connecticut. They don't have good Mexican food in Connecticut. I constantly thought about this. <laughs> it wasn't leeks and garlics, it was, you know, tacos and enchiladas and you just couldn't get anything like that up, up in Connecticut. So that was, uh, I, boy, I was just, sometimes you just wake up in the morning and you can taste it. You wanted it so bad. And that's what's happening here. They yielded to intense cravings, so they start complaining about the food. Because every morning and every night, every morning they're getting what? They're getting manna. Now, what, what does the word manna mean? No, it doesn't mean bread. No, it's not from above. It is the Hebrew word man, men, meaning what? What it is. That is? That's what it was. What is this? It was it was like bread from heaven. It was something like that. It was tasted uh, like coriander seed, which I wouldn't like. Uh, so I'm, it was like honey. It had a sweet. I always tell people it, this was like a fresh out of the fat. Hot Shipley donut in the morning. And that's what this was. I mean, it just there was nothing to taste that tasted that good. Just hot, warm, just sweet. It was it was good. But if you had that every day, and there was no variation in the diet, that's the problem. Is there? Oh, I want some. let's go back to our favorite food. So they began to complain and they want meat to eat. And so they remember the fish that they ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic, all the seasonings. But now our whole being is dried up. There's nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Now the manna was like coriander seed. It's color like the color of the And the people went about and gathered it. Ground it on millstones or beat it in the mortar, cooked it in pans, made cakes of it, and its taste was like the taste of pastry prepared with oil. When the dew fell on the camp in the night, the manna fell on it. And the people complained, and that's described in verse 10. And this, this bears on Moses. I tell you, there's nothing harder on a leader than a bunch of whiny, complaining people who are always griping about something. And you know, it's the right thing, but they want something else. So Moses goes to the Lord and says, why have you afflicted your servant? Now there's a little bit of self-absorption there on Moses' part, isn't it? Lord, why have you given me these people? You know, they're they're pain. Yeah. Why have I not found favor at your side that you've laid the burden of all these people on me? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Where am I going to get meat to give to all these people? For they weep all over me saying, give us meat, give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to bear all these people. Well, now, then we move to the next level. See, what God says is, okay, this is too much for Moses. He's trying to handle every problem on his own. Great leadership passage. So you need to develop a... uh, Support team here. You need uh, intermediate levels of leadership. So, establish these seventy elders. Are set up, and then the Lord comes down to Moses, and we'll skip down to verse 25, and let's skip down to verse 31. Now a wind went out from the Lord and it brought quail from the sea and left them fluttering near the camp about a day's journey on this side, by a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp, and about two cubits above the surface of the ground. That's about maybe three feet. So the people stayed up all that day, all night, and all the next day, and gathered the quail. They went out with nets and they captured all these All these quail, while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a great plague. And so he called the name of the place Kibroth HaKavah, because they buried the people who had yielded to craving. And this is the second complaint. They complain about no meat to eat, and so God says, you want meat, I'm going to cram it down your throat. And those of you who have no uh, no discipline, no resistance, you're going to die. Yes. They have the right to complain about it. Hmm? They have the right to complain about it. They, they, didn't, they didn't have didn't the right have to. to complain. No. It's disobedience to God because it's ingratitude. Hmm. So God's, God's freedom from slavery. God's providing everything for them. They don't like what God provides. So they're complaining about it. So God says, no, that's not a sign of trust and gratitude. No appreciation for grace. Sometimes God provides us what we need, not what we want. And we think we need to have all these other things in order to accomplish His will. And that's just, that's in gratitude. You know, the, the Latin word for grace is what? Anybody know? The Latin word for grace is gratia. English words come from gratitude gratitude gratis grace all these words are interrelated if you do not have gratitude for what you have you do not understand grace I'll give you two illustrations of grace that, that I always go back to one of them has to do with a pastor of the church where I grew up and a friend of mine tells a story he was a 4 student. This took place back in about 1965 or 1966, and he was down here in Houston. And he was going to house sit while the pastor and his family went on vacation. And as the pastor was getting ready to get in the station wagon with uh, his family to drive uh, across the country, he got out he started getting in the car. Got out and came back up to him and he said. You know, you're going to need some money to get by the next couple of weeks. And he reaches in his pocket, he pulls out a water bill, and he peeled off $300 bills. This was in 1965. Okay, that's like peeling off about $1,500. Okay, that's a lot of money back then. Maybe more, maybe a couple of thousand. And he peels off $300 bills and gives them to him. And my friend looked at him and said, I can't accept this. You need this for your trip." And the pastor looked him in the eye and said, if you can't learn to accept a gift, you will never understand grace. You see, there's a lot of people like that. They would love to give, but they can't receive it all. If you can't learn, they, and the other story involves the, the same pastor. The church had grown and they didn't have room for their church library anymore, which was fairly decent size. And so they were going to give the library away to pastors who needed need a library. So they were going to give these books away. Another friend of mine was in town, uh, just starting off in a pastorate, and he went there, and this pastor said, well, go in the library and pick out any books you need and uh, take them with you. And so he did. He went in there. He says, I took about 15 or 20 books. said, I wasn't oriented enough to grace to take the whole thing. Think about that. Oriented to grace to take the whole thing. See, we limit ourselves. He could have walked out of there. They 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 gave that the rest of those books or something else. But you know, there's something in us that says, you know, I I have got to limit what I take. You can take all you want to. Here, let me give you five hundred dollars. Take no 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 no. Well, maybe I'll take a hundred. You know, God gives us everything. It is free, no strings attached. But we don't appreciate and understand it enough because there's something bred in us that I have to earn it. Everybody's all, I have to earn it. I might take a little bit, but I'm not going to take the whole thing. And so he told me, he says, years later, he says, you know, Robbie, there were such great books, and I just wish I had taken the whole library. It was offered to me, but no, you know, there's this false humility there that I'm just going to take a little bit. So we, we don't really appreciate grace. Grace is related to, to the concept of, of gratitude. So people aren't the people there weren't gratitude. Then the third complaint is the third complaint I have there is a complaint of Miriam and Aaron against Moses. This is in chapter chapter twelve. And we read that Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. See, they're complaining against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. He put off his first wife and been his second wife. So he said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? See, they were arrogant. You know, God can speak through us. Why do we have to follow Moses' leadership? See, this is one of the great challenges that we have, is that we want to define how God's going to do things. But the Bible defines how we should do fast. Now we're told in verse 3, Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all the men who were on the face of the earth. That's that verse I referred to earlier. Suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. So they came out to the holy place of the tabernacle. The Lord came down in pillar clouds, stood in the door of the tabernacle, called Aaron and Miriam. And they both went forward. He said, Listen to my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. This is a really important passage. God doesn't speak to Moses like anybody else. I speak to him face to face, even plainly, not in dark sayings. It's not enigmatic. In fact, the Septuagint translates this with the Greek word. um, That's where we get our word uh, enigma. An enigma is like a puzzle. It's it's unclear. Guess where that word shows up in the New Testament? Number 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 to 13, talking about why the gifts of knowledge and prophecy cease. And it says, for now we see through a mirror enigmatically. Same word. But then we will see face-to-face. What's it talking about here? Face-to-face, mouth-to-mouth. The imagery, the words that Paul selects there, he's specifically referring to the gift of prophecy and he's using terminology that is reminiscent of what God says here to Moses in (coughs) chapter 12. I speak with Moses face-to-face, even uh, plainly, not in dark sayings. He sees the form of the Lord. uh, Why then are we not afraid to speak? Once again, they're being rebellious. They're not showing gratitude for what the leadership of God has provided. And so, Miriam suddenly becomes leprous. And I would imagine that it says, if you read between the lines here, then Aaron turned toward Miriam, and there she was, a leper. She turned leprous, white as snow. I imagine he just turned white as a sheep, knowing what was about to happen to him. And so Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, please do not lay this sin on us in which we have done foolishly and which we have sinned. See, there's immediate confession of sin, and then there is, there's recovery. Moses then prays to the Lord to heal her, and the Lord uh, uh, heals her, but she has to be out of the camp for seven days. So that is the third complaint, is the complaint of Miriam and Aaron against Moses. Okay? So we have three complaints. The burning, the craving, and Aaron and Miriam. Those are the three complaints that we have. Then we go to the next section. People move from that location in Hazoroth, verse 16, and they move up into the wilderness of Paran. Let us uh, let me go back to some slides here. Here's the desert of Iran here. So somewhere here they're moving out into this location. They're moving from generally in this area somewhere up towards Kadesh Barnea. Now recently, did any of you see that, that show on the um, History Channel? Several, it was on a couple of months ago now on uh, the... The, uh, trying to prove the exodus event and the party of the Red Sea and everything. And at the end of that show, he tried to show that, that the Sinai was really located somewhere up in this area. But you see, this is, doesn't work because they're headed from where they are. They're headed from Sinai through Hazara to the desert of Paran here, which isn't up here. So this doesn't fit. This, this guy had some real crazy notions in that particular thing. Um, now they have three failures. They have three complaints, and now these are three three failures. The first failure is to believe God and follow Caleb and Joshua in chapter 13 through 15. They get instructions in verse 2. Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel, from each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, every one, a leader among them. So you're going to send out the 12 spies. And then we have a list of who is sent from and from which tribe they are sent. And then they go into the land. And we get the description of their going into the land. I'll find it. There we have a map. The description of their going to the land. And they say, Moses sent them, verse 17 then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them go up this way into the south, in Negev, that's the southern part of, uh, down in this area, the southern part of Judah. Go up into the Negev and go up to the mountains, which is in the northern part, up in this area, and all the way up to uh, the north, up north in here. Notice they go all the way up into what is modern Syria. Modern Israel ends right about here. If they go all the way up to see, here's Damascus, that's the capital of modern Syria. So they spy out the whole land that God has promised them. And to go up and see what the land is like, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor. In other words, go and find out everything you can about. The land. So they go up and spy out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob near the wilderness of Hamath. And that's, see, that's located up here in the northern part. You probably can't read that, but this says Lebo Hamath. So they go all the way up into what is modern Syria and then uh, come back down. They go into the land, they go to uh, the south, they come to Hebron, and they run into Achiman, Sheshach, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak. Now what's interesting is later on the Anakim get defeated, and the remnants of the Anakim flee to a city named Gath. And where's Goliath from? Gath. See, Goliath is a, is a half-breed mix between the Philistine... And the, old, and the remnants of the Anakim. So he represents a traditional enemy of, uh, of Israel. Verse 23, they came to the valley of Eshcol, and there they cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes, which they carried between two of them on a pole. Think about it. They also brought pomegranates and figs. Now, my, my folks had a fig tree, and a fig was usually about this big. When I was in Israel this year, I saw figs that were almost the size of, of, of baseball. They were huge. I got a picture of the bowl, but I didn't put like a pen or anything next to it to get perspective, and so you really can't tell how, how large they are. But they were, they were probably about about this big around. Huge. So there's tremendous productivity in the land, the potential for tremendous agricultural prosperity there. They styled the land for 40 days which is about six weeks, and then they come back to Moses in the congregation, and they say, it, it, it's true, it's a prosperous land. It flows with milk and honey. Uh, there's, there's everything there we want, but there's a problem. The descendants of Anak are there. In other words, there's giants in the land. The Amalekites dwell there in the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, and uh, there's a lot of people there. That's the second problem. And the third problem is that they live in fortified cities. So they come back and say, we can't do it. There's giants. They live, there's innumerable people. People are like grasshoppers. And um, they live in fortified cities. We just don't have the ability, the skills, the tools, and the technology uh, to do this. So uh, we can't do it. And all the congregation, chapter 14, verse 1, lifts up their voices and cry, And people wept at night. And all the children of Israel, what did they do? They complained against Moses and Aaron. See, it's a lack of gratitude for what God provided. They blame God. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword? <coughs> There's no trust uh, trust for the Lord whatsoever. Yet Joshua and Caleb stand up and tell them that this is a great land. The Lord delights in us. He'll bring us into the land. If God wants us to have it, He'll... he'll solve the problems. Our, our issue is to not rebel against the Lord and to trust Him, but the people um, react. All the congregation said to stone them with stones. A lot of pastors have congregations like that. Now, the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle and God is going to punish them and Moses intercedes for the people. That the Lord would not destroy them, but that the Lord would Continue to uh, deal with them in grace. So now there's going to be a death sentence to the whole nation. All of you who are numbered according to the entire number from 20 years old and above, everybody's got to die. Only Caleb and Joshua are going to enter into enter into the promised land. You know, Joshua's the only only person in the Bible who didn't have any parents further than Adam. Who said, Joshua, the son of They're <laughs> really bad, I know. So bad you just have to get rid of it. Really <laughs> okay, so then the people have remorse. Uh, one of the worst things you can have in the Christian life is remorse. Because, see, God has already disciplined them and removed the blessing, but now they're remorseful. And they want to try to go out and do it in their own power. See, that's what remorse is. There's a difference in the New Testament between remorse and repentance. Remorse is just that you're just feeling bad emotionally. This is, you're the kid that got caught with his hand hand in the candy jar, and you're not sorry you did it, you're sorry you got caught. And so there's remorse, but there's not repentance, which is change. So they try to do it on their own power, and they uh, they are defeated. So that's the first failure, the failure to trust God and follow Caleb and Joshua in chapters 13 through 15. Then we come to the second failure, which is the failure of the Levites. This is the failure of the priesthood, and this is covered in chapters 16 through 19. Chapters 16 through 19. Korah, the son of Ezar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi. See, you get the genealogy because these are this isn't legendary. See, that's what liberals have come along. We don't have any evidence of these people, so this is just sort, some sort of legend or myth. But these genealogies are placed there to show these are real people with real parents, and these are real events in history. And they're identified here. Korah, along with Dathan and Abiram, the son of Eliab, and... The son and on the son of Hella from Reuben. They took men, they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, two hundred and fifty leaders of the congregation, and they gather against Moses and Aaron, and they say, You try to do too much, you think that you're the only ones who can take us to God. Once again we we'll get back to this whole principle of exclusivity. God says there's one and only one way to me. There's only my way is the only way you can worship me. But man wants to come along in rebellion and redefine the terms. So they want to redefine the terms and say, well, we're going to lead the people. We're going to do it on our own terms. And so Moses heard it. He fell on his face because he understands what the horrible consequences are. And he says, okay. He uh, speaks to court, verse five, and his commands, says, "Okay, tomorrow the Lord will show who's his, and and so what you do is you take censers, cord, and all your company, put fire in them, put the coals in them, and put incense in them before the Lord, and it shall be the man whom the Lord chooses, chooses is the the holy one." So they go in and. Uh, the, the next day they're going to do this Moses calls verse 12 Moses calls by theycon Byron sons of, uh, of uh, the sons of Eliab and uh, they don't want to resist this thing so the bottom line is is they uh, come in God is going to destroy all, all of them. And we see in verse 19, court gathered all the congregation against him at the door of the um, tabernacle of meeting. Then the door of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. The Lord spoke to Moses and and saying, "Separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment." In other words, get out of the way because I am going to uh, just uh, destroy them. And they fell on their faces and said, God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, or one man sin, you be angry with all the congregation. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the congregation, and say, get away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram.'" So he, once again we see how prayer changes things. So Moses prays. It's very fascinating. We haven't had time to focus on this. Study these prayers and to see how Moses argues with God. Not in an the argumentative sense, but like a lawyer. He presents a biblical case based on the character of God and the covenants, why God shouldn't do certain things. And that's part of... Remember God said in Deuteronomy... We haven't done that yet, so you won't remember. In Deuteronomy, God says, I'll send false prophets among you who will perform real miracles in order to test you to see if the Lord loves you. See, God is testing Moses to see if Moses is really going to stand for the people and intercede for them, or is he really concerned about just doing his own thing. And so God says, I'm going to kill every one of them. And Moses intercedes again for the people, and God says, okay, just get everybody else away from the rebels, and I will destroy them. So everybody backs off from poor Dathan and Byron, David uh, and Byron come out in verse 27, and they stood to, to the door of tent with their wives, their sons, and their little children. Again, we get to this thing that, holy he isn't God harsh? I mean, they, they're standing there, the mothers are standing there with their babies and their little kids hanging around their skirts, and God is uh, going to kill everyone. And God uh, opens the earth and swallows them all up. Verse 31, it came to pass. Says, He that is mostly speaking, all these words of the ground split apart under them, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, and all the men with coral, with all their goods. So they and all those with him, children, women, those who were, every, every single one of them, just swallowed up. Then all Israel. It was around the leaves, and, and last the earth was falling. Well, and I was scared to death. And the fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. And then they're going to take the the censers and hammer them out as plates as a covering for the altar because they presented before for the Lord. Therefore they are holy and they shall be assigned to the children of Israel. So there's a constant reminder. So this is the second failure, the failure of the Levites we see God's punishment on, on Korah, Dathan, and Byram, their families, their children everybody plus the 250 and in chapter 17 God is going to reconfirm Aaron even after all of that what happens? before the grace God just wipes out Korah, Dathan, and Byron all their families, they're just swallowed up you're standing there, the earth parts, they're swallowed up God sends fire from heaven and consumes the 250. What did the people do next? They complain again. They complain again. On the next day, all the congregation of children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron saying, you killed the people of the Lord.
1: Because they had killed
0: all the Levites? Yeah, not all the Levites, but all the rebellious ones. Okay, but see, the people are still, see, they've got this problem with it's the same problem we have. We want to define God on our terms, define worship on our terms, and come to God on our terms and not on His terms. And that's why we have to go to the Scripture. The Scripture tells us how to worship God and what's right and what's wrong. So there's this other complaint, and a plague comes out on the people, and that's described in verse 46. And wrath goes out from the Lord. The plague's begun. And Aaron, Moses goes out and stands between the dead and the living to stop the plague. And we're we'll told in verse 49, Now those who died in the plague were 14,700. So we've got 14,700. The 250, that's 14,950. And then we have the families of poor dates nearby. So we've got 15,000 or more who were killed in one day. Now aside from the fact that the families of Coronation and Environment were swallowed up in the earth. And aside from the fact, and they were buried, and aside from the fact that the 250 were basically cremated on the spot, now we have 14,700 plague victims who have to be buried. When you break it down, sometimes do the math on the average, how many people died every day when you have to get rid of 1.6 million people over a period of 38 years. They're performing a lot of burials and having a lot of funerals while they're going through the world. It's a constant reminder of the failure at Kadesh Barnea. So they rebelled against Aaron, and now they're going to have a little test. and want to put up their own priests against Aaron. So each one of them takes their staff, their rod, their walking stick, and walking stick is made out of dead wood. And so they take their, and this, if they've had them for very long, it's really dead wood. I mean, Anybody walked along with them, Gone on a hiking trip with a walking stick for a long time. You know, there's nothing that's going to grow out of that walking stick. So they each take their walking sticks and they put them in the uh, in the uh, tabernacle. And God is going to produce life. Green shoots and buds come out of Aaron's rod, and the other two don't. This shows God has blessed Aaron. It shows that God brings life where there's death. It's just a great picture. Of regeneration, and God reconfirms Aaron there in chapter 17, and then chapter 18 he, read it, he reconfirms his choice of the Levites. And in Numbers chapter uh, 21 we have the description of the tithe for the Levites. He says, "Behold, I have given the children of Levi all the tithes in Israel as an inheritance, in return for the work which they perform, the work of the tabernacle of, uh, of meeting." So this is the first tithe. Tithe means what? Ten percent. Now what we're going to see is that there are three tithes in the, in, in, in the Old Testament. Now who were the Levites? The Levites are the priests. They're the ones who take care of the temple. They're the ones who, uh, who lead the people, who teach people. The Levites are in a form, operating in a form of government called a theocracy. Right? God's the king. The Levites are the ones who teach about him and his law. They're the ones who administer the sanctuary. And they basically are the bureaucracy and the theocracy. So 10%, the people are taxed 10% to take care of the government, basically. And they take care of the tabernacle and the temple. So that's our first tithe. And uh, where was this money kept? Anybody know where they kept money in the ancient world? But where, where, where was the banking uh, the, the, the original banks in the ancient world it was the temple whether you were in Greece and it's the temple of Aphrodite up on the Acropolis in Athens or whether you're in Rome or whether you're in Jerusalem in the temple of God the money was kept in the temple because the gods guarded it or God guarded it and the priests guarded it so it's the safest place for all that money that's why when Malachi comes along and says bring your tithes into the storehouse he's talking about bringing your tithes to the temple this is this is the temple service the treasury for the national for tax it was, it was like the the uh, the uh, uh, federal reserve I mean this is where uh, it's like the U.S. treasury this is where the tax money is kept and then it is uh, t- taken care of so this is where we have the first mention of a tithe is in chapter 18. Um, there are offerings, these various offerings are given for the support of the priesthood. The tithes are given for the support of the priesthood. And then chapter 19 we have the law of purification. It, uh, this is where it brings in the idea that the red heifer is described. You shall take the... Uh, uh, the told Israel to bring a red heifer without blemish. That means no white hairs, no black hairs, it's got no defect on which a yoke has never come. You give it to the priest and he may take it outside the camp and slaughter it, uh, burnt offering and then use the uh, ashes to uh, sanctify everything. Now that's one of the things that's, that's an important issue over in Israel right now is there are various groups that are trying to lay the foundation for rebuilding the temple. Of course there's a problem with the building of rock being on the temple rock, on the, on the uh, on temple mount. But they believe that uh, eventually the Messiah will come and they need to rebuild the temple. All the furniture has been rebuilt. I understand they've identified men who are qualified to be priests. They have their genealogies all the way back to Aaron. And they are trying to find a red heifer. There have been three or four candidates for red heifer. Can't be more than two years of age. And what's happened is some blemish has appeared, a couple of white hair, something like this, which is disqualified. So they need to have a red heifer so they can... uh, get the ashes from the red heifer in order to consecrate the next temple. So that's uh, that's part of the understanding. Every now and then you'll hear people talking about what's going on in Israel today and they're trying to find the red heifer. Okay, then we come to the third failure, which is in chapter 20. And this is where we see Moses' error. Moses' error at... Um, Kadesh. This is when they come back to Kadesh. This time, this is this is the uh, at the end of the 40 years, and Moses and Aaron both fail. Uh, Miriam is going to die, and she because of her rebelliousness, she's not allowed to see the promised land or in the promised land. So she dies at Kadesh, and there's uh, 30 years. I mean, 30 days of mourning. <coughs> But they also have a problem with no water for the congregation, so they complain again against Moses and Aaron. And if we only died when our brethren died before the Lord. See, you don't see a whole lot of you know, repentance here. They, they haven't understood the issues. They blame uh, Moses and God for bringing them up out of Egypt. So the Lord speaks to Moses, saying in verse 8, Take the rod, and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. And he says, speak to the rock, not hit the rock. But Moses gets angry. He's angry at the people, and he loses his temper, and he hits the rock. And the problem here is that Moses loses his temper. It's a right thing done in the wrong way. And as a result, this disqualifies Moses then from entering into uh, the land. And this is called the water of Meribah because the people had contended with the Lord. The water of Meribah. Meribah means bitter because the people are bitter with the Lord. Then in chapter 20, we see that Aaron dies. In the next section, they pass through Edom. The Edomites don't want them to come through Edom. And so they're going to uh, go around Edom. And then in verse 22, uh, Aaron dies. And the high priesthood passes from Aaron to his son, Eleazar. And they mourn for Aaron for 30 days. Now they begin to come around. They go to the king of Arad, the Canaanite, who grew up in the south. And uh, let me go back here to show you a map. Arad is located uh, right up in this area. Okay, generally speaking. Here's Beersheba. Okay, Arad is located right in here. Right Right near Beersheba. And so they come up at least this far. This is wrong here, the way they have this line drawn. Really, they come all the way up into here to Arad, and then they head back down. Here mm-hmm. you know, Arad came out to the south That Israel was coming on the road to Hathomim, and he fought against Israel and took some prisoners. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, "If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities." And the Lord listened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites. So there's an attack there at Hormah, which is uh, south of where Be- that she- Sheba and uh, Hormah is located. And then the, they journey from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. Now the Red Sea. Let me go back to the is here see all of this down here is the red sea and it has two ports up here this is the gulf of suez and up here you have modern times you have the suez canal and over here is the gulf of Aqaba and so they've come up here now they're going to come up into this area now they're going to swing back down south by the red sea so that they can get around edom and uh, cross over. And it is while they are on the path there that this episode with the fiery serpents occurs. And the people recognize that they have sinned against the Lord, and they have sinned against Moses. And so Moses prays to the Lord, and the Lord says, make a fiery serpent, put it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. This is a great picture of what faith is. This is the exact picture that Jesus uses in John 3, 14, 15. That, he's got, that his death on the cross is comparable to to being lifted up like a serpent. And that by looking at, at the serpent, that's a simple act of faith. Remember, Jesus, I mean, uh, the Bible doesn't say that. We get saved by inviting Jesus into our heart. whenever you think about the gospel, think of the Old Testament pictures. Would you be sitting there when 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 you have this this at a sacrifice, and you're putting your hand on a lamb, and you're transferring your sin as substitute to that lamb? That's the picture of what happens in salvation. It's a picture of substitution. Would you look at those little doe eyes in that lamb and say, I want you to come into my life? Is that what's going on there? Uh Uh-uh. It's a transference of your sin to the lamb. You're not asking the lamb to come into your life. That lamb's looking up at you and going, yeah, but in five seconds I'm going to be dead. Okay, see, we have to go to Old Testament images to understand what faith is. Faith is not asking that serpent on the pole to come into my life. I'm I'm not sitting there going... I want to commit to that bronze serpent on that pole. See, that's not what faith is. Faith isn't commitment. Faith is trusting something, believing something. And so they just say, God said, if you look at that serpent on the pole, you'll be saved. And they said, I believe that. And they look. And they're instantly healed from that uh, poison from the, from the viper. That's what faith is. And today, we don't express that very clearly in most churches and most evangelists when they're trying to tell people how to get saved. We've got to keep it biblical and keep it simple. It is simply trusting Christ. Don't use these horrible words like commit, and invite Jesus into your heart, all this other stuff that is never used in the Bible. You never have that anywhere in the Scripture. And it violates every image of faith that you have in the Old Testament. So, that's the episode with the fiery serpent. Then they move uh, on into, and and you have the description of their movement the latter part of 21. And what they're doing is they're coming up around on the east side of the Jordan up past Edom and Moab. And in the latter part of verse 21, they come to, you have this Sihon king of the Amorites. They send messengers to him, say, let's pass through your land. We will not, you know, we're not going to mess up anything. We're not going to raid your fields. We're not going to plunder you. Uh, We're going to uh, come up. But Sihon won't allow them uh, to do that. So they gather to go out and fight against Israel. Israel defeats them with the sword and take possession of his land from Arnon to the Jabba. Now, here's the Arnon River right here, coming into uh, about the mid- midway up the east side of the, of the Red Sea and then see here's the army here and the Jabbok is up here this is the Jabbok here and this is the area of Nile where Jacob wrestled with the angels so this is the area that belonged to Sihon the king of the Amorites and that's the territory that they take at this particular point and then they've got to fight uh, Bashan. Uh, so they fight uh, down Sihon. then they go against Og. Ag. Uh, Og king of Bashan went out against them and all his people. Now, Og, it doesn't say it here. This is, he, his coffin described in Deuteronomy. But he's a giant also. And he is, he's like 11 feet tall. This guy's enormous. They describe the, the, the size of his coffin. And so the guy's—he's larger than, uh, larger than Goliath. But it's paired get Balak the king of Moab. And so Balak the king of Moab. And then we have this interesting thing with Balaam, uh, the prophet, and his uh, his prophecy here in the next four chapters. And Balaam is probably a, a a believer. There's a number of terms that are used in here that indicate. Uh, that he has a personal knowledge of God, but he is in rebellion against God. He's not using his gift of divination or prophecy, or his gift of prophecy correctly. He's using it like it's a pagan gift of divination. And so he is in complete rebellion against God, but God speaks to him, and he, he Balak is going to hire him to curse the Jews, and God says, well, you can't do it, first of all. can't do it. And so he, he won't do it. He says, um, he tells Balak that he can't do it, but he wants the money, so he keeps uh, trying to work out some kind of, of compromise. And then you have this episode where he's coming to Balaam, and uh, the angel of the Lord stands in his path in verse 22. And his donkey sees the angel of the Lord. Balaam can't see the angel of the Lord. His donkey sees the angel of the Lord, and Christ come aside, and Crushes his leg, and then uh, the angel of the lord stands in his narrow path between the vineyards, The wall one side, wall on that side. And the donkey sees the angel of the lord. She pushes herself against the wall, and crushes his, Balaam's his foot, and so there's this ongoing confrontation between him and the, the, the uh, angel, and he starts beating the donkey. Now this is a picture to show how, why is he beating this innocent? undeserving donkey when the donkey is simply responsive to the command of the angel of the Lord. What's the point? Why does Balaam want to curse Israel who is simply doing the bidding of the angel of the Lord? But see, Balaam doesn't get the point And so he comes and he goes through these cycles of, of these prophecies where he attempts to curse Israel and instead he gives a prophecy of blessing. And in there he makes a couple of really uh, significant insights. For example, in verse, uh, chapter 23, 19 and 20, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. As he said, will he not do? Or has he spoken? Will he not make it good? In other words, God has made a covenant with Abraham and he's not going to reverse himself on it. And he has promised that those who bless bless Abraham uh, will be blessed. Those who curse Abraham's seed will indeed be cursed. He says, Behold, I have received a command to bless. He has blessed and I can't reverse it. So this is Bala, Balaam talking to Balak, explaining why he can't curse why you can't curse the Jews. Well, when it's all done, said and done, Balaam comes along and he does tell Balak how he can, if you want to defeat the Jews, I can't curse them, but if you really want to defeat them, let me tell you how. You go out and you find all your all your beautiful daughters who are enmeshed in paganism and you get them to go out and entice the young men of the Jews, and when they get involved in these marriages, these women are going to lead them right into paganism, and you're just going to wipe them out, which is exactly uh, what happens. And that's what's described in chapter 25. And the result is that... another large group, I'm looking for the number right now, another large group gets um, gets wiped out. Where are
1: we?
0: Verse 9. Verse 9. And those who died in the plague were 24,000. God sends another plague among them to um, discipline them, and another 24,000 died. So... That brings us up to end of chapter 25. And then God is, throughout this, he provides, shows that he is faithful to his covenant. Under 2C, fill in the blank. Under 2C, God provides hope after rebellion. Fill in the blank. God's faithfulness is to his covenant to Abraham, not the goodness or the obedience of of the people. So even though they're rebellious, God continues to maintain his promises to Abraham. Now we come to the last section. God prepares his second generation for entry into the promised land. This is from chapter 30, 26 to 36. He instructs them to number the people at the beginning. This is in chapter 26. We have our second uh, second census of the people. It's chapter 26, one through 65. And there are now 601,730 people. And in this, there's this little episode that takes place with the daughters of Zalopahad. In verse 33 we read, Now Zalopahad, the son of Hepha, had no sons but daughters, and the names of the daughters of Zalopahad were Mela, Noah, Hogla, Milcha, and Kirza. These are the families of Manasseh and now what's going to happen later on is that, that he dies and all the property goes to the daughters, but they marry men who come into the family and so that the inheritance is protected. What that shows us is God's concerned with the preservation of the property rights down to the generation so the families and clans don't lose the property that they're given in their inheritance. This is developed in chapter 27 where we have the inheritance law. Then, verse 1 we read, Then came the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Haper, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, from the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. And these were the names of his daughters. And listen again, they stood before Moses, and before Eliezer the priest, and before the leaders of all the congregation. And they said, Our father died in the wilderness, but he was not in the company of those who gathered together against the Lord. He wasn't one of the core of rebellion. He wasn't any of the others. He just died in his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be removed from among his family, because he had no son? Give us a possession among our father's brothers. So Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, The daughters of Zelophehad speak what is right. You shall surely give them a possession of inheritance among their father's brothers, and cause the inheritance of their father to pass to them. And you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a man dies and he has no son, then you shall cause his inheritance to pass to his daughter. If he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the relative closest to him and his family, he shall possess it, and it shall be the children of Israel's statute of judgment, just as the Lord commanded it. So it's a preservation of property, and the Lord is concerned about that. What does that tell us? That God's not a Marxist. He believes in personal ownership of property and responsibility. And personal ownership of property is what's at the core of a healthy economy because you have ownership and responsibility. It goes back to that first divine institution personal responsibility and accountability. And that, leaves, that is the foundation for freedom. That's what Founding Fathers did. And, and you know, it, when, when Thomas Jefferson first wrote the first draft of, it, of the uh, of the Declaration of Independence, and he talked about uh, that uh, um, the uh, oh, I can't believe I'm going a mental glitch now. Um, we hold these truths to be self-evident so that uh, uh, everyone has a right to to what uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. There you go. Uh-huh. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know what the original clause was? Life, liberty, and property. Life, liberty, and property. Because they understood that property was the foundation for sound economy and personal responsibility. And their concept of happiness wasn't what modern man thinks of happiness, which is just emotional stimulation, but success in producing a life of value and productivity. That's how they understood happiness. And that was grounded on property. So, you know, you just see how these ideas that are biblical uh, impacted the way people have thought about government and economy and economics and law all down through the ages. So God provides instruction here to preserve property inheritance in chapter 27, uh, 1 to 11. The second half of the chapter, God designates Moses' successor. He provides a successor in Joshua. And then he instructs in chapter 28 the successors, the new generation on offerings, feasts, and vows. In 28, 29, and 30 we have the various offerings, Sabbath offerings, monthly offerings, Passover offerings, feast, of Weeks, and this takes you through the Jewish calendar. Then we come to a battle, a war against the Midianites in chapter 31. And again, this is a problem because uh, they don't kill all the women. And Moses says in verse 15, have you kept all the women alive? Look, these women caused the children of Israel through the council of Balaam, To trespass against the Lord in the incident of Teor, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. Now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones, and kill every woman who has known a man intimately, because they were involved in the seduction of the Jews at the incident back there in chapter 25. Then they lay out the uh, uh, organization and real estate. Guidelines and boundaries for those who are going to settle on the east side of the Jordan. In Chapter 32, Chapter 33, there is a review or summary of the, the travelogue as they journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. Chapter uh, at the end of the chapter, there are there's a summary of the command to uh, destroy all the Canaanites. Chapter 34, they give the boundaries of Canaan. And describe described the leaders. And then in chapter 35, they set up cities for the Levites. These were special cities so that if you, uh, let's say you committed justifiable homicide. And now the, the person's family that you kill wants vengeance. Then you could go to one of these cities of refuge. And you weren't going to prison, but you couldn't leave the city. But you were protected there. It was a sanctuary. And as long as you were there, you were okay. But if you left, then you were—they uh, could kill you. So you have yeah, the cities, are, the, the sanctuaries, so the levites are set up because they don't have a possession and inheritance. I mean, the Caesar and then they set up the cities of refuge and lays out these laws in chapter 34 to 36, basically describes various laws related to living in the land. Key things to remember in the book of Numbers in the, the complaints three complaints the three rebellions as I point out on the review sheet the three complaints the three rebellions you have to know the key players like Cora, Dathan, Byron, Miriam Aaron, uh, Eliezer uh, Balak, Balaam Og uh, purpose for the census how many there were and where and the significance of Kadesh Barnea? What's significant about Kadesh Barnea? That's where they failed to trust God. That's where they were when they sent out the twelve spies. That's where they were when the twelve spies came back, and that's where they were when they rejected uh, God's provision. And then reasons the ten spies were discouraged. Real simple. Hmm? what were the three reasons? Yeah, three reasons they're discouraged. What? Walled cities,
1: giants,
0: and people like locusts. There's too many people. Too many people, giants, and walled cities. That's it. Okay, any questions? Any questions? No questions? Hmm? Yeah, the key word for is wanderings. Wanderers. Wanderings.